Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. So welcome back, everyone. I'm excited today, as usual. I know you probably get tired of me week after week saying I'm excited, but today I am also excited um, we have two, again, best-selling authors with us uh, that are going to talk about their book and also talk a little bit about their work. Um, so I'm pleased to introduce you uh, to Daniel Simmons and Christopher Shabri. Uh, welcome, Dan and Chris. Thanks for having us on. Well, yeah, glad, to be here. glad to have you. So as both of you know, I'm a, I'm a professor in uh, leadership program at Columbia University um, at Teachers College, and and what really struck me was this this book that you've written called Nobody's Fool. So we're going to talk about that in just a little bit, but um, I would love to hear how the two of you came to collaborate on this book, really. But why did you think it was important to write about something, which I, I agree with you 100%, but would love to know how you came to write about something like um, you thought leaders and others out there needed to know how to avoid being taken in by people or, or groups. So let's start there, either of you, however you want to start, but uh, would love to hear a little bit about how you got here. Sure. So uh, we've actually known each other for, oh, something like 25, 26 years now. Uh, so it wasn't like we just got together and decided to write a book. In fact, we had we had written a book before, which came out in 2010 called The Invisible Gorilla, How Our Intuitions Deceive Us, which was sort of based on research we had done together in cognitive psychology. And, and after that book came out, and it did, it did fairly well, uh, we really wanted to, to come up with a, a follow-up to that, we liked the idea of writing books. It was fun and uh, it was very stimulating. Um, and the, eventually we sort of coalesced on the idea that one of the important ways that people take advantage of our cognitive limitations and our biases and um, just sort of the way our minds work that's maybe not you know purely rational and optimal and perfect um, is in deliberately trying to deceive us. Um, so, uh, and this sort of coincided with the rise of, a lot of um, scams, frauds, uh, cons, stories about scams, frauds, and cons, podcasts about them, movies, books, and so on. And those two trends, I think, sort of in, in, in my mind came together at the right time to give us a framework to think about, um, you know, what's one of the most dangerous things that can happen to us because we're not sort of perfect, rational, cognitive beings, but instead we have these habits and foibles and preferences and so on. How do people take advantage of, of that? That's really, um, you know, we were working on ideas for a long time. And then that sort of, I think Dan actually had the insight that we should, we should organize it that way. Uh, and I would think one of the things I'd add to that is that, you know, one thing that we have emphasized a lot in our writing is not so much that people are bad or clueless or stupid in how they reason or think. It's that we normally do things quite effectively. The things that work really well for us work for good reasons. And deception is one of those contexts in which the things that normally work really well for us get hijacked or twisted to take advantage of us. Mm -hmm. So it's taking advantage of tendencies that are usually pretty good, but that can go wrong. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's very interesting because, um, and while I haven't made it through 
the the entire book as of yet. But um, I know that the book is is broken up into two parts about habits and hooks. And so I, you know, some you have, and I, so I'd like to talk about it in in terms of those. Um, but but I I think about some of the things that I've encountered um, over time that have to do not not just your ordinary confidence schemes where people call you on the phone and you you're already uh, suspect that. Uh, this is not this is not something I should respond to, or I shouldn't give them my email address or any information about me. So not want to not some of the warranty? more yeah right, <laughs> right. or 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 the one about yeah not the car warranty, but it, it was so funny. I I would get these about my student loans, and it was like I haven't yeah. had student loans in years. What is, what is this? Yeah. Like you know your student loan is at risk of being uh, canceled or something, and I just laugh, but about these habits we have. And I don't know if this fits, but um, I, I thought about that sometimes, depending on the context that people um, go into certain situations with a bias that to believe something, right? Mm -hmm. That they go into it, that it's just the way we operate. Is that we operate this way because we assume certain things uh, about what's happening. And I know that chapter three is about be careful what you assume. And I don't know uh, yeah. if this is quite applies, but I want to tell you, and I'd love to get your your opinion about this because um, for some of us, and I've told, I've told uh, both, you know, colleagues of mine, I've, uh, my daughters, I've tried to, you know, instill in them, like, don't just believe things because people are saying, and even if they come from uh, they're in a position of authority or what have you. Don't just assume that one, they know what they're talking about, or two, that they're they're correct. But tell you a quick little story. Um, it was uh, there was a, a a snowstorm. I have a home in Connecticut, and there's a snowstorm there uh, some years ago, and it was a big storm. And 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 the short of it is that. Uh, you could barely see around a curve. I know it's hard for some people to imagine, but the snow banks were taller than the cars. And so you'd have to go around a curve and you'd almost have to go all the way out before you knew if someone was coming or not. Well, um, there was a gentleman who was directing traffic another way, dangerously uh, pushing people a different way. And so I stopped and I rolled down my window and he said, what are you doing? Go the other way. And so I asked the question, who are you? And he said, well, what do you mean? Who am I? I said, who are you to be directing traffic? Like, I'm supposed to trust you, go this way. And he was taken aback because everyone that he told to go in that direction. And, and so it turned out that he was just Joe Blow trying to get someone else out of the direction, but he was directing, dangerously directing people in the wrong way. And I refused <laughs> to, I refused to go that way. So, because I just wasn't going to be taken in by that. Um, and so, you know, I, I have been accused, my grandmother used to tell me I would argue with a stop sign. So <laughs> some of it is just the way I am, but from a leadership perspective, I reflected on that later and said, I think that's what makes me different 
is that sometimes people can tell you things and I'm just not going to assume that they're right. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, because that's a habit I have about questioning. Mm -hmm. um, but I, 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 like I said, I don't know if that fits, but sure. I'd love yeah, to hear so you say more about that. Yeah, I think there, there are several things that you touched on in that example. One is that quite often it can be really effective to just ask one more question and you get much more information than you otherwise would rather than just acting as efficiently as you can. Yes. And it can be uncomfortable to do that because you know sometimes it, it it's confrontational sometimes you might not have the confidence to ask that question so it doesn't necessarily need to be uh, as provocative or in your face as you know who are you right <laughs> that works but you could also ask why are you directing people over there or in another situation you can just say hey can you tell me more and just getting somebody telling you more about what they're doing can lead to other questions that you can ask more naturally. Sure. And there's another point that you raised in there that I think was really interesting about the calls you get about your student loans, right? So you're not gonna fall for that um, if it is a scam and it probably is, but imagine you're a student who has a lot of loans. You're the target for that. So you yeah. may be just as smart, just as clever, just as educated. And if it's not targeting you, then what sounds too good to be true to you is maybe just good enough for somebody else and leads them to to fall for it. Mm -hmm. And the scammers, of course, know that. Normally, they'll try and target their scams more effectively than reaching people who don't have loans. But it's pretty cheap to automate those sorts of calls and emails. Yes. You can yeah. send them to millions of people. And yeah, so 90% of the people they hit don't happen to be interested. But if they hit 10% that are and 10% of them respond then you've got a pretty good return on their scamming investment. Yes, yes, yes. I want to go back to the snowbank. Um, like, I actually think that's a great example that I wish I had known about it before we wrote the book or while we were writing the book. And it, it called to mind a similar thing that happened to me one time. I think my wife and I were driving from the Denver airport and there was somebody directing traffic like all off to one side, like a detour or something like that. And I think you had the option of going right or left. And a lot of people were going left, but it was it looked like they were driving off into a field or something like that. It was very odd. So so I went right and and later on, like found on the news that there was some like huge weird thing that happened where people like got into some big traffic jam by like going off into some side lot or something like that. I don't remember the details of it, but really what's going on, I think, in a lot of scams is you, you've got people essentially pretending to be traffic cops, you know, who are like pr pretending to direct you the right way mm -hmm. and like even be acting in your interests or something like that. Like, you know, for example, like cryptocurrency, like, yeah. you know, invest in this cryptocurrency. It's like, and you know, they sound authoritative. Like they sound like they know a lot of stuff. They know what's going on. And they say like, it's, you know, it's safe, you know, it's and so on. And it's kind of just like they're pointing you in some direction and it just seems natural to follow them. And in the, the traffic guy's case, I think also reflects on um, the fact that, you know, so many of the, so much of the time, like it's good to follow, like when someone's directing traffic, like it's not dumb to, to follow the guy who's directing traffic. And it's also good to stop at the stop signs, by the way, rather than, you know, <laughs> you, yeah. I guess you could argue with them after you stop, you know, but um, if you really <laughs> argued with every stop sign and tried to come to an independent conclusion about whether it was well-placed by the traffic, you know, designers and so on, you wouldn't be here, yeah. you know, having this podcast with us. So um, that's what the, you know, the, the really good frauds do is they sort of come in the guise of something that's totally acceptable above board, you know, and so on. And that's a little bit of an obvious statement, but um, an, an obvious principle, but they do that because they exploit 
you know, these tendencies we have. And I guess the, the one that, that strikes me also here is, um, uh, you know, truth bias. Um, so we sort of just assume like by, by default that whatever people are telling us in this case, you know, like it's safer to go that way, you know, instead of this way is true. Um, and it takes extra effort to, to stop and in your case, actually ask a question, but even just to stop and, and think about it often, we don't, we, we don't do right. Extra effort. Um, and, and we couldn't really question everything, right? Like that would be nonsensical. We would never, you know, get through life at all if we if we operated that way. So they're they're kind of clever in the way the way they they have relatively sophisticated understanding of how, you know, of how we work in order to to, to cheat us. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I also had my father would uh, tell me, and I, I think I've said this here before, is uh, would would say, uh, believe none of what you hear and half of what you see. And it would always remind me of that when something weird would happen and and go. So I would say, but if you see it, I'd, I'd always push back. <laughs> you know, but if you see it, it's like, still can't believe all of it. Still I mean, it's can't a good principle to question, but, you know, believing none of what you hear would be very hard to engage with anybody in the world. And believing half of what you see, you know, if really half of what we saw was deceptive, it'd be a disaster for all of our abilities to interact with each other, to to organized to be sure, part of a community sure. so sure. but, it's, good but to, it's good to be questioning occasionally yes yes <laughs> yes but what i walked away with is that is that there are truths and untruths even in what you hear and what you what you see um and so don't just walk away so that's where you know i was thinking about some of your chapter titles like think about what's missing um, expect to be surprised, be careful what you assume, which we've covered and ask more questions, what I think is brilliantly framed in, in the book. But I would like for you to take just a moment uh, to expand a little bit on what you were getting at right in that chapter, um, like the real take home, take home for um, expect to be surprised. Um, because for a lot of people, it's like, well, why would that, why would that be what my entry point to expect? to be surprised. So, so the basis of that idea is that you know, part of what our brains are doing is sort of constantly predicting what's going to happen next. Yeah. Uh, and you can experience this for yourself when you walk down the stairs, right? Like if you're, if, if you're sort of expecting your foot to not hit, you know, a step because you'll go down. And if you're sort of not paying enough attention, you might be predicting one more step, but it's not there. And then your foot kind of thuds on the, on the landing. Right. And so on. So we're always making these predictions, even at the level of our motor systems and our visual systems and so on, but even more abstractly, we have a lot of expectations about exactly what's going to happen next. And one of the ways we can navigate such a complicated world is that we have a very good idea what's going to happen next. So we're not confronted with surprise every second of our life. It's not some new situation we have to process from scratch. Um, so, you know, people who are trying to take advantage of us, of course, you know, at some level appreciate that principle. And what they will often do is feed us exactly what we expect, which, you know, sort of A, you know, disarms us. Uh, it doesn't put us on alert the way a surprise might. Um, and B, it sort of leads us into, you know, a, um, a situation where we're likely to accept, you know, to accept the next thing. So a great example, I think is, um, and, and Dan can expand upon this, but often in science fraud. Um, so, you know, when scientists commit fraud against other scientists, essentially by publishing fake studies or studies based on fake data and so on, they don't publish, they don't make up something that's like a completely crazy novel discovery that will win the Nobel Prize. Well, they sometimes do, but, but most of the time they don't like for fake a Nobel Prize winning discovery because if it's so out there, 
it's going to surprise so many people that a lot of people are going to rush and check it. But if it's just plausible enough, if it's just kind of what people expect the next research finding to be, or cons a consistent research finding with a lot of what's already out there, then people won't check as much. You know, they'll basically, the editors and the reviewers will say, okay, that makes sense. And they'll just, they won't check as, as carefully. They won't be as skeptical. So they're, they're satisfying the expectations of their audience and, you know, using that as an entry point to sort of commit a certain kind of fraud. Mm -hmm. I would add that that tendency to expect, you know, to look for what we're expecting, to pay more attention to what we're expecting and not to be as critical of things we're expecting uh, is one of the biggest sources of reasons why we unintentionally deceive other people. So mm -hmm. all of us, if you get something shared on social media, for example, that you strongly disagree with, you're going to be really critical of it. You're going to be able to tear it apart. You're going to be able to find all the holes in it because we're all good at that when, we, when we're motivated to be. But when you get something that perfectly fits what you expect, you tend not to check it as much. You tend to be more willing to just reshare or repost. And that means you might be passing along something that's wrong just because it was what you expected. Mm -hmm. And I think this is actually the biggest source of scientific errors, just yeah. mistakes, not, not fraud, not making things up, just making mistakes. Because if your results of your study come out exactly the way you expected them to, you're less likely to triple check them than if they came out exactly the opposite of what you expected. Sure. And it's just an innocent way that we all fall for this, that when it's what we expect, when it's unsurprising, consistent with our predictions, we don't tend to dig deeper and ask ourselves, is that really true? When we get something that's counter to our predictions, that violates our expectations and beliefs, we really immediately tend to look at this and say, wait a second, is that right? Could that possibly be right? Or is it wrong? Yeah. Yeah. And, and especially I think about um the the times we're living in now with so many opportunities for people to just pass something along and because a million people have seen it and and a half a million have shared it it almost automatically becomes the truth right it, it's like it's it's a commonly accepted um piece yeah. of information. I won't call it a fact. It's a piece of information, yeah. right? That's commonly accepted. So somehow the leap makes it a fact. But I think, I, again, I love the way, and especially in the first part that you're, you're talking about uh, those habits that you incorporate, particularly about thinking about what's missing, which is something I am constantly, people on my team, we talk about all the time, think about what's not there. Um, think about what information you don't have. And so one of the key pieces in decision-making, I teach a class in decision-making, is to know what you don't know. Is that there, people say, well, but if you don't know it, how do you know? It's like, there are pieces that are missing. <laughs> mm -hmm. You have to think about what is it that's missing as a as a broader category that I need to investigate more, which really also underlines yep. what you said about asking more questions. Um, but but all of those make for uh, great habits. And so um, I think you have, to know, I, I, you have to know that you don't that you might not know everything. Right. Yeah. It's, so it's not necessarily knowing the things you don't know. It's yeah. knowing that you don't know everything that right. <laughs> you might need to look more. Absolutely. We are so like, and, and for good reason, again, like no one's, we're not here saying like the brain is messed up, like it shouldn't be designed this way, but we are so 
uh, controlled in a way by oh. the inf information coming in, right? So that what we see in front of us exerts like a very big hold over us and draws a lot of our attention. And it's much easier to reason about what's in front of us or what's readily available in our memories, you know, and so on than it is to think about things that aren't there or that have to be, that don't come to mind and so on that, you know, we should really build like systems, right? Like, so if you're in a position of leadership, you know, you should sort of build some kind of system or habits or norms like in your organization, in your team, you know, to sort of cause this kind of checking to happen because it's so easy to just get propelled forward. I've seen it in many meetings, meeting after meeting after meeting, people just look at the slides, like nobody ever asks, like, what about this other thing you could have done, but you didn't and so on. Those questions rarely come up, even from scientists, like from scientists, they tend to come up more because we're sort of trained to be that way and probably also selected because we're kind of that kind of person in the first place to try to poke holes in things. But but even so, it's 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 more rare than it should be. And it needs to become like the alternative habit, yes. right, to really think affirmatively about what's not in front of you. And, and that could have saved in our book. We talk about lots of different scams like Bernie Madoff, Theranos, some famous ones and some not famous ones, doing that, I think, could have saved like some of the people who got taken in by by those things because they were really quite too accepting of what was put in front of them and not thinking enough about what wasn't there. That's the, right. That was one of their main errors. Right, right. No, absolutely. And I think about what I have actually kind of taken home uh, from a lot of the research, what has been most valuable to me, the research in neuroscience, two, two big points. One is that I learned about just how good the brain is at filling in gaps. Doesn't mean that they're, it's real, but missing pieces of data it's used to seeing, it'll put it there. It'll make it look like it's there. You know, whether it is that step that you were talking about that you anticipate the brain puts it there and, and it fills it in from a you know, kind of a optical illusion almost that it was there. I thought I saw it and could have sworn it was there, but I'm on the floor now. So it wasn't there. Uh, that's number one. But the other thing that I think has is, is so powerful too from the neuroscience is that the brain wants to do what it's always done. Like that's just a matter of survival that it does it and, and it, it survived it and it goes, okay, that was cool. So that's what I should do to survive. And so it keeps pushing you to either make the same choices or to do the same thing you did before. Doesn't mean that it's going to be successful, but it means that, as you mentioned, Chris, that that's the way it's wired. You know, there's an interesting aspect of that that you had know, drawn that it really has to do with uh, how we develop intuitions. Mm. Right? And our intuitions are based on things we've experienced over and over again. And that's often a good thing. Um, and as you say, it leads us to kind of expect the same thing the next time, which is that sort of gut feeling that this is going to happen the same way it's happened in the past. The problem comes when our experiences aren't representative of the way the world actually is. We've only had some experiences and we haven't had all of them. And I think that's a reason why some really highly educated, intelligent, capable people have fallen for big cons and big scams and, mm -hmm. you know, endorsed Theranos, for example. Yeah. Because they're the sorts of people who've had a lot of success and they assume that they've developed great intuitions about how people act and can read people. And those intuitions might well be right in some mm -hmm. contexts where they have a lot of expertise and they know what the alternatives are, but they tend to assume that their ability to do that applies everywhere. And Wherever. you see this all the time where people- And every time, every and time. And every time, right. Yeah. And they they 
have this belief because they've had some successes in the past that their abilities generalize to anything, even if they have no idea what they're talking about. And that, that's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful case in which our sort of built up expectations can be wrong because we're not thinking about the experiences that could have happened had we done something different, Yeah. right? That the experiences that we've missed along the way that should really help form our intuitions and constrain them. But we only think about the experiences we've had because we didn't have the other ones. We can't, we can't think about what we didn't do. So yeah. Yeah. It, it's a case in which, you know, people say, oh, trust your gut. It's like, well, yeah. that sometimes is a good thing to do. And sometimes your gut is based on the wrong ideas. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I haven't uh, made it to part two. Uh, I think it's fascinating. You have so habits and hooks. So without any uh, kind of spoilers. Tell me a little bit. What do you mean? The hooks? What are the, what are the hooks about? So uh, hooks are things that people trying to deceive us put into their messages or their communications or their appeals or whatever that are sort of inherently appealing to us. Um, so, and these are not necessarily the obvious ones like, you know, sex cells or like we like sweet flavors and so on. They're a little more subtle than that. So, mm. um, Two of, uh, you know, there are four of them um, that we talk about in the book. Um, the first two are consistency and familiarity. So, um, you know, we tend to like um, patterns and experiences that are consistent. And we we like, um, we have an underappreciation of the importance of variability and randomness in real data. So, for example, like, you know, scammers trying to, you know, sell you on a financial um, investment if they're sophisticated might show you like very consistent annual returns. Like, you know, you, 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 you make 9% a year, you never make 20% a year, but on the other hand, you never lose anything either. So everyone loves 9% per year, even though that's completely unrealistic. What's more realistic is like, you'll lose 10% one year, maybe make 30% the next year and so on. That's like the stock market. Yeah. So they, they sort of, they sort of put that consistency in there to sort of, uh, you know, appeal to us. And, and that also comes up again in science fraud, where sort of often science fraudsters will make their data look too perfect. Not enough noise, not enough randomness, and even scientists get fooled by that sometimes too. Um, and then the second one um, that I think is really important is familiarity. We we sort of have a strong, you know, bias or tendency to be be more likely to accept what's familiar, what's similar to what we've experienced before, what comes from familiar sources. And of course, again, this makes sense, right? Like if someone you know says something, you should probably be more likely to accept it than you know if, if a stranger says it. But again you know, that gets sort of weaponized and turned around on us. For example, putting, you know, putting, I'll go back to crypto again, it's on my mind for some reason, but putting appeals for cryptocurrency in the mouths of Tom Brady, you know, Larry David, um, you know, Steph Curry, like celebrities that we're so familiar with, but they almost sort of, you know, feel like, uh, you know, people we know, because yeah. we pay a lot of attention to them. We know a lot about them. We recognize their voices, their faces and everything, just like our own family members or friends. Yeah. Right. So that's exploitation of familiarity in, in a variety of ways is, yeah. is a critical use of a hook. Yeah. And, and before you, you go on to the others, um, I, that, that rings a real fam familiar bell <laughs> uh, um, with me is that, you know, I think about how people ask you all the time. And I, I, I intentionally got out of this when I'm, when people ask me what something tastes like. And without 
real comparison. You know, everything people always say, uh, any meat, it's like, oh, it tastes like chicken, right? We always hear that. Yeah. And and I said I I just stopped doing that because it is, it has its own, if you wanna, you know, you wanna compare, try it and then make your own assessment of it. But it's worth trying. It didn't kill me, try it. But I um but I know I know that people want the first thing they want is tell me what it's like that I know. And 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 what it is is that they want to be influenced to try it. They want to be convinced that it's okay and that I'm not going to be repulsed by it, whether it is how something tastes or as you've been giving the example of do I have the stomach for the risk involved with uh, something like crypto? Is it is it like this? I was just I just heard, and I forgot. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but maybe if you watch the same news I do, just on uh, Fareed Zakaria yesterday, they had a gentleman on the show that just wrote a book about um, uh, the crypto trial that's going on right now. And what they said was the reason the banks were taken in by, um, is it Freed Bankman or Bankman Freed? Is it Sam Bankman-Fried? Bankman-Fried, yeah. yeah. The reason yeah. they were taken in, and this is this it was a exact quote, was because of how he designed his FTX exchange to be like the exchanges, like what they were used to seeing, and that's what they said. It was like it was the others weren't like that, and it was something that was familiar to them, and so they bought it. It was because it was what they were used to seeing. So there you have it. You're you know you're right on the money with this. Well, that that's an interesting that's an interesting point. I mean, like one part of the whole appeal of FTX was they wanted to make trading cryptocurrencies and crypto related products and and so on as as similar to trading you know known commodities and and stocks and so on as as possible yeah. and at least more similar than than was the you know the the current. Um, you know, the current standard. I hadn't really thought about that before, but yeah, the, the sort of like, I mean, there's a lot of unfamiliar things about the way the crypto business yeah. works, which is one yeah. reason why it should be avoided. It doesn't, you know, we get, that's a whole separate topic, but but making the aspects, you know, that can be familiar, as familiar as possible was also, I think, part of the, you know, part of the appeal of the whole thing. There are some cryptocurrencies that are sort of actually have the the, the initials USD, in their name because they're supposedly connected to the US dollar. What mm -hmm. could be more familiar in finance than the US dollar, right? The most, the most solid, you know, the yeah. most solid thing there is in the world in, in yeah. a way, you know. Yeah. So there's a lot of very subtle use of familiarity to hook us. Mm -hmm. Like anything mm -hmm. that, you know, any anything that we already feel good about that we already know really well. Like, you know, you always have to watch out when like, you know, things seem like, you know, they're familiar and safe and, you know, and 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 yeah. so on. Like that could be deliberately put there to, to make you feel that way, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so you had a couple of other hooks, precision and yeah. potency. So yeah, precision, both of those, just like consistency and familiarity, they're generally really good things, right? We, we like for things to be consistent. It's generally safer to trust things that are familiar to us because we know that we've survived them in the past. Um, and precision is similar to that. If you can make a really precise prediction and it's based on true evidence, that means you have a really good understanding of the world, right? So if you can predict what the temperature is going to be tomorrow at 2.30 p.m. within a couple of degrees, that's pretty good precision. And it's based on probably a pretty good understanding of weather patterns. Um, 
it's much more useful than saying, hey, it's sometime in the next two days, it's going to be somewhere between 25 and 70 degrees. Right? That's not gonna be very useful. Um, so precision is generally good. The problem comes again when people hijack that information and they give us something that's really precise, even though there's not actually any evidence backing it. So they just make up a precise number and it sounds really good because it's it's got a level of detail that makes us think that there's something genuine underlying it. House prices are a good example of this. People will price a house at a particular, you know, they'll price it down to $5 or something. And it's like, well, there's nothing in the comps that will give you a $5 level of precision, <laughs> right? Yeah. But because they can give you that precise number, it might make you less willing to negotiate because it feels like there's some reason for it. Yeah. And we just assume yeah. there is. So yeah. that's about precision. <laughs> Potency is a slightly different sort of concept. And this is sort of, I think, a more general one, which is that quick fixes are really appealing. That one simple thing that will solve a complex problem mm. are often really appealing to us. And those sorts of potent interventions can be really great. I mean, the invention of antibiotics, it's amazing. One little pill can completely eliminate diseases that have plagued the world for centuries. Um, but those sort of giant effects from one little step are really rare and they should be really rare. <laughs> so. Generally, if you've got a really complex problem that's got multiple causes, you're not going to be able to solve it with one quick fix. But the idea of miracle cures is endlessly appealing to us because if somebody can say, hey, this thing is powerful and enough to take care of all of these problems for us or these big societal problems that are complex and multi-determined, then th if that's true, it's a huge deal. So, of course, hucksters make it sound that way. Yeah. They make it sound like they can solve it. They make it like snake oil, where you mm -hmm. give people something that can cure all of your problems. Sure. And sure. we see this a lot in, you know, in research that doesn't end up holding up because people will claim that a simple intervention that takes an hour is going to eliminate huge societal problems or lead to a big change in how people do in school or in, in life. Like, yeah, it's probably not yeah. likely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you to both of you. Uh, we have Dr. Daniel Simons and Dr. Christopher Chabri, who are uh, both uh, uh, professors, scientists uh, that have written uh, a book, Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. So listen, um, I, there are people who I know are listening in and they want to know, uh, you have another book, uh, The Invisible Gorilla, um, but tell us where where people can find you, follow you, support the work that you're doing, um, any other books or articles where they can uh, just support you and, and get to know you. I invited you here to share you with everyone else because I'd found you. So please uh, let them know any social media handles, email addresses that where they can they can be in touch. Sure. So if you want to find the book, if you go to my website, which is just dansimons.com and go to the books tab. You'll see the books there. And that also has a list of all of the things that we've written related to the book and other interviews and um, you know, radio programs and things like that, podcasts. So lots of other places you can find more information, excerpts from the book there, and uh, links for where you can get it, which is pretty much any bookstore can get it. Okay. Yep. 
Chris? Uh, you can find, yeah, you can find me on, I guess it's called X now, formerly Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm at CF Shabri, CF, and then my last name. Uh, and I'm also, I also have a website, shabri.com, C-H-A-B-R-I-S.com um, as well. But Dan really pointed you to the right place to go if you want to learn anything more about the book or our previous book. Um, there's also links there um, to awesome. The Invisible Gorilla and uh, and so on. So yeah, you can find it everything there. And on Excellent. social media, I'm uh, Prof Simons, P-R-O-F-S-I-M-O-N-S. Excellent. Thank you both. And thank you for spending some time. I uh, really appreciate you. And so until we meet again, go well, stay well. You too. Thank you for having us on. Thank you.